Welcome to Grazy Her's Life on the Land podcast summer series, where members of the Grazy Her team pick their favourite podcast episode from the last 12 months. Hope you enjoy another look at these amazing stories. Hello, my name's Victoria Carey and I'm the editor of Grazy Her. When I was asked to name my favourite episode of our Life on the Land podcast series, I just thought this is going to be a very tricky thing to do. It's a little bit like being asked to name who your favourite child is, which we all know is a very bad idea. So I love so many of the episodes, but I think my particular favourite would have to be Laurie Pensini. Laurie is an artist who lives in WA and she has a fascinating life story. She told Sammy about her experiences in the Pilbara and how that's shaped her art today. And the other reason that Laurie is a very special one for me is that her artwork, Running in the Scrubbers, was on our cover of our October-November issue last year, the very, very first time we've ever put an illustration on the cover of Grazy Her. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Herb podcast telling the stories of women living across regional, rural and remote Australia. I'm Sammy O'Brien, your host for the season. The way Laurie speaks is so poetic, it's not hard to guess that she's a creative. From the very beginning, she explains her strong and innate connection with the flora that surrounded her. Her connection to the land runs deep, shaping not only her art, but also the very lens through which she views the world. Laurie, we're so excited to have you. We're absolutely in love with your artwork. But before we get into all of that, I just wanted to go from the beginning, from your early years. What was your earliest memory as a child growing up on a farm in WA? I, I had a, a wonderful upbringing. Um, I was born in 1970 um, in a small rural town called Narrogen in the Wheat Belt of WA in the southwest. And um, we just, uh, there was no mobile phones or internet or, or even television. So it was basically in the bush most of the time. So we were just really feral, um, dirty. Um, and also it was really unstructured play. What I loved about it was that it was just anything was a possibility and we um, basically used our resources, which was just just the natural world. Do you think that's sort of what started you on the pathway to creativity? Absolutely. I mean, the um, the bush was my friend. My sisters were a bit younger than I was, so they weren't worth playing with until we got a lot older. Um, so I spent a lot of time outside um, with the animals um, and I used to, um, when I was little, I had this, this idea that, that the bush had different languages, like everything in the bush had languages. So the, the trees spoke to the birds and the birds spoke to the uh, flowers and, um, even the creeks and the hills, they were all sort of these sleeping animals or these, um, these creatures, um, that had feelings and language. And I felt like I was the only one that really didn't have, um, that I couldn't communicate to them. So I used to spend hours and hours just, um, you know, sitting with the trees, trying to mimic their language or mimic their movement so I could fit in. So it was an endless fascination for me. Um, and wonderful for my parents because they, um, they didn't have to deal with the child that was bored. Where do you think that came from? 
Well, essentially, I, look, I didn't know at the time. Um, they just thought I was um, a fanciful child with a big imagination. Um, but I actually have just done some research um, and reconnected uh, with the Indigenous side of our family. And I was talking to to Uncle Clint recently. Um, he's a Noongar, Noongar law lawman, and I was telling him how I felt spiritually connected to to these the landscape and its different languages, and that I'd felt um, quite like I was uh, like a little bit crazy, you know, having these ideas. And um, he just uh, basically, you know, gave me a hug and said, um, "No, I, you know, I totally get it." And it was really, it was really powerful having that emotion and that feeling validated by a Noongar man. It was just, it was wonderful. Incredible, isn't it? Because it's not like you would have known anything about sort of that side of things when you were so young. So it obviously yeah. is really just within you. Absolutely. It was really powerful. It was like a jigsaw puzzle, a piece of the puzzle had you know, come into play and, and I could see the full picture because it didn't make sense. It felt so right and so deep when I was little. It was just a part of my whole being. But, you know, as a, as a young adult and a teenager, that wasn't considered something, you know, worthy. But, you know, you wouldn't talk like that, especially in a small town. So, yeah, it was just lovely, you know, talking to um, talking to Uncle Clint about just having having that spiritual connection to the landscape. Um, and then also understanding our, um, our family history of, of having Indigenous bloodlines as well, like knowing that that connection is, you know, that's a blood connection too to the landscape. Was that always something that was celebrated within your family or that was something that was sort of put to the side? No, no, it was um, it was probably made aware of. We've been, uh, we're eighth generation grazier, so we've been on the lands um, since colonial first settlement and we've had an unbroken tenure to the landscape. So I just presumed that that my connection was coming from that, you know, the epigenetics, the inherited uh, stories of the landscape, and that was definitely one side of it. But I think it ran deeper because, um, you know, I just didn't. I had more of an influence more than just my great grandmother's stories. It went it went way back, and, and all of these stories have been handed down since the, since the beginning. So um, yeah, I feel I feel that when I paint. Now, your mum always discouraged your painting when you were growing up. In her eyes, it sort of wasn't considered a proper profession, I guess you could say. So what did you do when you finished school? Uh, yes, it wasn't wasn't uh, considered a serious profession. And, um, you know, if looking at the 70s, what was I, 88 when I graduated, 87 when I graduated, you know, really there wasn't a lot of opportunities in the arts for women, especially rural women and, and rural women from WA as well. So, um, and she came from a poor family. So she was basically saying, you know, you must have some sort of, um, standing in society. Um, so it was really important to her. So, um, well, like most teenagers, I left, uh, left my small town and went to the city and, um, you know, the lights were alluring and just, just so much activity rather than just having a football um, on a Sunday. So um, I went to Perth and God, I, I did everything. I, you know, we sold roses on a Friday night. Um, that I think we only lasted one night there, my cousin and I. <laughs> I was, we were terrible. I think we had 50 roses to sell. We sold two and that was to our co- other cousin's boyfriend. So that didn't last long. Um, but eventually I got a job in a temping agency because I did work for dad um, in his um office so I knew how to type and run an office so I got a temping job and then that led to Barrick Silicon which was a uh, is a mining company and um, one day they were short of a drawer and they said look we need some few drawings drawn up some shading and whatnot does anybody here can do that and I put my hand up and said yeah I can do that and um, so they thought I was pretty good um, at colouring in and then they offered uh, me a they suggested I go to TAFE so I, I um, after a couple of years I started an architectural drafting degree but uh, I barely graduated before I met my husband. 
So that was sort of, I guess, what allowed you to use your creative side in a job that wasn't very creative. Yeah, oh, <laughs> colouring in, colouring in on the lines. I don't know how creative you'd call that. But yeah, there was no flexibility in that. Yeah, I think it just opened up the pathway. I'm a strong believer in, um, you know, nothing is wasted. And that architectural drafting degree or certificate was, um, it's a really powerful tool in being able to, um, even though it's quite structured and that's not how I paint, but it, it gave me a really good spatial awareness and being able to, plan things um yeah definitely the the negative and positive space was was an advantage and also perspectives I think that was the biggest thing I could take away from it but like I said I moved uh, with my husband and I I swapped architectural drafting for drafting cattle very quickly (laughs) I love that and you met your lovely husband when you were um, 19 at the local pub and not long after moving uh, sorry not long after meeting him you moved up to his family cattle station in the Pilbara. Tell me what that move was like. Well, I'd never been further north of Perth um, before, so, you know, it was exhilarating and frightening uh, at the same time, and I basically just finished my uh, certificate and and uh, we left. Um, I told mum and dad. Dad was, he was very supportive. He just loved, he he, uh, he was a big man on, on following your heart and doing what you love because then um, you'll be good at it because you've got your whole body going into it. Whereas mum, it took many, it took a few years for her to warm up because she thought, you know, for me to have this certificate, have some sort of qualification finally, and then have me turn around and say, I'm going to be a camp cook, you know, and <laughs> Jack Jillaroo, she's just like, oh, you know, okay. It took a bit for her to get come around. The Pilbara must have been, well, it was a massive contrast to what you were used to further south. But being off a property, was that quite an easy transition for you? No, it wasn't. Like, I thought it would be. Um, and I was very Pollyanna. I went up there with you know, stars in my eyes um, and that got knocked out of me pretty quickly when we hit the summer. No, completely different. Like, we had horses, so that was the only thing that was common. But um, I was cooking and I think I... Um, I think my, my grandmother said, good Lord, she can only cook uh, toast. So she was going to be interesting to see how she would go up there cooking for men. So, yeah, everything everything was different. The fact that, you know, you had to be really re- resourceful. Like the food, um, you had to make it last. Um, we grew our own vegetables. Uh, we did our own meat. But, yeah, there was no 24-hour power. There was no internet. or, or um, So it was really, yeah, you're very isolated um, and you just had to manage and make do. I mean, there were plenty of times where, you know, you only have some beetroot left in the larder and go, right, what can I do with beetroot? Like what sort of cake can I make out of that? Um, you, just, you become really resourceful. Like even pastry was made from scratch, uh, bread. I remember having to whip a pavlova by fork one day because we didn't have power. That was interesting. <laughs> you took me half a day. Yeah, it was really, I found out a lot about myself um, through through the adversity. And I guess the conditions that you were living in would have been a lot tougher than what you were used to. Absolutely. Given, yeah, we arrived, I think it was in November, so hitting um, hitting the high 30s to 40s. Um, and then the summer, we're on the homestead sat on Wailo, sat on this um, massive ironstone, oh, iron ore hill. So we had a lot of uh, radiating heat. Fortunately for us, it was a beautiful homestead where we kept um, the lawns and we kept a lot of shade and lawn and it was really an oasis, especially when we hit uh, drought and, and the hard summers when it didn't rain. That was, um, you know, I just thought it would, yeah, it was an incredible oasis um, and a place to, to come home and find green grass and, and just be, yeah, just a mental relief from the relentless weather up there. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, yeah, pretty grueling. I did have, um, before I went up north, I did have this clairvoyant, um, had a, had a, a session with a clairvoyant and she said, Oh, your life is going to be, you know, a red carpet. 
And, you know, halfway through the summer, I was, I was thinking about that red carpet, thinking I think she got confused with the red dirt. Dirt. <laughs> a, dirt. a few dirt storms, yeah. Oh, uh, you were telling me previously that some nights or most nights you'd sleep outside on the grass on a wet mattress just because it was so hot. It was, yeah. We just, um, my husband would just uh, get the hose and wet the bed down, not just a light sprinkling. You just basically saturate it. We had a few jackaroos that would sleep next to the pool. They just roll the swag out by the pool and just keep, you know, rolling into the pool, um, to get through. Yeah. We did have a little air conditioning, um, like in the middle of the day inside where we tried to get some relief. And I think it got down to 32 degrees was the coolest. And we did have a bow shed, but that was run over with snakes. So that we, um, we abandoned that pretty, pretty quickly because the little, um, zebra finches would come in because the cool, I'm not quite sure if you're familiar with, with a bow shed, but it's, it's kind of like packed spin effects. You just get this grass and, and a little bit of chicken wire and you build up the walls and then you put a sort of tap, um, a line of irrigation on the top and the water drips down. So then when the breeze comes, if there's a breeze, you know, it, um, it cools you down. It works incredibly. It's so efficient, but. The birds like it and so do the snakes. So, um, yeah, we didn't spend a lot of time. But you were outside. <laughs> yeah. Outside. Yeah. On the lawn, so at least you could see things coming. <laughs> what did your typical day at Wailu look like? Well, it was really, yeah, yeah, it was long. Um, I'm, a, I'm a slip of a girl, so I found it just really physically exhausting. Um, I, yeah, you'd wake up before dawn, especially in summer, you'd want to get ahead of the heat. So your blessed white cockies would wake you up before dawn regardless. And then you'd start the ovens or you'd start, um, the grill pans, especially in mushroom time. It was, um, I think I had, I think the most I put for was 15. Yeah, that, that varied, but over the summer, it was just a bare crew of myself and, Warren and his brother Evan. So yeah, it was sort of breakfast. Uh, they were so spoiled. It was basically cook breakfast and then cook smokers and then cook lunch and then cook uh, afternoon tea and then you know, sweets at night after tea. So it was a full-time job cooking. Coming from a girl who your dad said could only cook toast, what yeah. was it like having to actually come up with meals that would impress a whole camp? Oh, yeah, the, like the golden waddle book, you know, that was a blessing. You know, the old, the real old true and tried recipes and, and just a, and a bit of the, um, the old grapevine with a few other station ladies, you know, swapping recipes and things. So you basically, you basically had, you know, a good dozen recipes that you just kept trotting out. Um, and also the men were pretty, it was just basic, pretty basic food. It was just keep the protein up. No fancy thing. We did have a vegetarian a house girl come up one year. It was gorgeous. And she was, um, decided to make this broccoli forest and, um, and and they got to the meal, the main meal, and, and they said, you've got where else, you know, what else have we got besides broccoli? Where's the meat? <laughs> yeah. And she's like, oh, you've done so many hours on this beautiful broccoli forest thing. But um, no, it was just, yeah, feed the meat and potato and then the rest, is, you know, you can get away with. <laughs> Laurie, was it while you were living on the station that you started to explore your art? It was, and it and it came by accident. Like I said, you know, we started the day early, um, and we worked through. Um, in the winter, it was always mustering, so um, those days were long. Um, and basically, you went by the weather. You know, as as long as you could, uh, the light was still there, you'd be working. But my auntie, um, she was really uh, my auntie from England. So my my dad's youngest sister was um, absolutely petrified of the isolation for me, and the fact that I didn't have. I think I was there the first summer. I didn't have any women close by, so it was just, um, yeah, it was just a, a real male dominated area um, industry. And uh, she was, uh, she just thought um, I would go crazy mentally, crazy um, from the isolation, and so she was um, always sending these um, books on um, mental self 
self-help. Like there was one I always remember, it was called The Yellow Wallpaper, about this lady in England who was confined to a room and after a while she began to um, make stories up about the wallpaper and in the end she went crazy. So she was sort of like giving me these hints about, you know, just doing something. And after a while, I think they didn't cut it. She'd organised a thousand pounds worth of material um, from London to to come out via New South Wales via a cattle truck up to the station. And uh, yeah, all these all these supplies rocked up one day, just paints and pencils and and a ten meter roll of canvas. And you know that was a lot of money in those days. And I'd never had anything spent like that on me. So it was um, yeah, it was real well. Yeah, I felt really guilty because I thought, God, I have to pay her back. So I'll, I'll draw something to pay her back. And just with the instruction too, she left with a ten, um, with the uh, the ten meter roller canvas. You know, for Christ's sake, Laurie, just do something, do something. But I don't think she really realised how hard it was. You know, the animals don't. You know, they don't knock off at five, and it's a seven day a week kind of um, job, and it's just you just got to get on with things. You haven't got time to to relax or anything. So I felt really, really guilty, and so I take off some of my siesta, which is in the arms like Europe. You know, after lunch you'd have a little sleep in the heat of the day so I would have to forego that sleep and I'd um, roll out some canvas on the kitchen table and I'd have to you know paint and then unroll it again I clear it all away to to serve food afterwards so that was my my painting time yeah so that that's how it all began and even at that time you would have been so exhausted foregoing that nap but was that something that you looked forward to each day getting your paints out I did, and I think it was was more frustration than um than joy because just I just couldn't get it right. Um, you know, like I hadn't I hadn't drawn for years. It was my um, my happy place when I was little, but you know, as a teenager and, and a young adult, um, or you know, moving up before I moved up to the station, um, it wasn't it was something that I, I pushed aside because I didn't think it was um something worthy. But yeah, it was it was more frustration. I thought, like, damn, you know, I can be better than this. And you know, I used to be able to draw, so it was just this fixation on getting it right, and then it just became it became an obsession because I I didn't really want to draw it correctly because there were no no mobile phones then so you couldn't capture images so basically you'd see an image of something and then you record it in your head and you'd have to paint the impression of it afterwards so it was these impressions and I sort of started to work out that I needed to to uh, find the spirit of it like you know rather than trying to draw it exactly so that spirit was always elusive it's like catching whispers it was really hard to to pin it down into something that I was happy with. Tell me about the first time that your art was recognised, that you showed someone what you had done. Well, yeah, it was from that of, you know, I'm not happy with it. Um, try again, try again, try again. So I've ended up building up a little portfolio and uh, the portfolio did take pride on uh, pride of place um, and it was actually allowed in the bedroom under the bed. Um, and that was purely poor for, um, for safety is to stop the dirt and the rodents and the geckos and everything else from getting to it while we were outside on the lawn. Um, so yeah, word got around that I was drawing and, um, a lady, Catherine Stafford from Stafford Studios and she was, um, started an art gallery in the Pilbara in Caratha. And she'd, she'd heard from the other local station ladies that I was uh, drawing and, um, to check it out. So she rang me one day and, and said, could I come down? And that was, um, yeah, it was, it was a huge uh, feat because it was three and a half hours uh, drive and she rocked up one day and, and showed me, um, or I showed her my work and uh, she said, these are good enough to exhibit. Would you like to exhibit? And um, that was a really difficult time because I'd never set foot inside of an art gallery. Our family weren't arts, uh, arts-minded and I really struggled with the concept. I felt like, you know, imposter syndrome that I was exhibiting and I hadn't been taught and and I'd never seen anybody else's work either, so I didn't know how to judge against, you know, 
compare against my peers. So it was absolutely frightening. But, um, yeah, somehow I said yes, and um, there off we went. So you're dragging the artwork out from under your bed and then it ends up in the gallery. <laughs> yeah, it did. Although one of the pieces, I did say that that, that was to protect them, um, one of the pieces we ended up showing did have a little um, a little gecko or a mouse or something had run across it in the in the wet paint and had eaten some of the paint, didn't like it, and ran off. And I remember the lady at the gallery where um, well, one of the, the clients was saying, is that a rodent? Is that? I can see tracks. And we had to, uh, we had to take it back and repaint the, over the tracks. But I actually really liked it. I thought that was really authentic. <laughs> That's cute too. <laughs> what, what inspires, what's your biggest inspiration for your artwork? It's so different to anything I've ever seen before. Oh, look, it, it took me years to find, find myself because I was just, um, like I said, I think, being self-taught, I didn't have a lot of art knowledge. In fact, I had no art knowledge around, you know, technique or um, even history, art history. So I couldn't rely on other other forms. So I, um, but I had all this lived experience. And and the deeper I went into the lived experience of what I was feeling on the landscape, the further back in time I went. So I, I started, um, yeah, heading back to my childhood and, and those feelings. Um, and, you know, that beautiful, the sense of being a child where, you know, it's, um, you can be anything. So uh, extending that imagination back there and then uh, researching my family. So, yeah, it's really coming from, from within. Your studio is located on your property where you are now. You're no longer in the Pilbara. Can you describe to me what you see when you look out your window? Oh, well, we brought the cows down from um, Pilbara. So um, I still see see the cows. So basically, um, it's a it's our room that I've put onto the end of the house because I didn't like the idea of not being there for the kids and being around them. So, um, yeah, we built a studio onto the end of the house and basically it's yeah, two walls of glass. So all I see is the, the horse paddock and the cattle and the bull paddock um, and then the, the sheds. So, um, and I'm only about 100 metres from the, the bush. So we have some virgin bush uh, with grass trees or balga trees and uh, granite outcrops and, and a creek so yeah really fortunate I'm just, almost just I'm immersed every day and I haven't a particularly hard day which today has just been uh, a nightmare and just you know I had all this confidence yesterday it's just not there today. the piece is just not working out so I'll go for a walk later on and it won't take me long to reconnect. Your husband Warren is one of your biggest supporters was he a big part of why you sort of pursued your creative work? It, yeah, it, now he definitely is. Um, in the early days, so it was sort of like, oh, how do we combine art and beef? Uh, <laughs> I don't think that that's a complimentary pairing like wine and cheese. It just kind of didn't really go. But um, if you if you peel that aside, essentially that, you know, our love for the landscape and um, his fourth generation, Brazier, I think it was the love for the landscape, but not only that, like we feel like we're custodians of the landscape. And I think it's, um, it's our duty, whether you're black, white or brindle, to, to care for your landscape and to leave it in a better shape than when you first got it. So it was that love for, um, for the bush and, and country that has probably married our, our two thought processes and our journeys together. And that's been, um, really wonderful. Um, I'm barely on a horse anymore. Um, yeah, my horses, my quarter horses are. Yeah, old and fat outside, retiring <laughs> while I, I spend most of my time in, in the studio um, and Warren still works the farm. Your beautiful artwork is a mix of people with a botanical element. Talk to me about that and explain to me why that came about. I'm a figurative, well, what would I call myself? I'm a figurative narrative artist and um, so I like to tell stories about the bush 
um, and our connection to it. I'm really into just um, our relationship with the landscape and, um, you know, for better or for worse. And so I started to to pick up on these elements um, of the landscape and, and how they how they felt and the spirit of it. So I, I created this language of flowers, which has become quite a signature in my art piece. Where I will say, say for say for example, the Banksia. So I research um, the ecological aspects of of the Banksia, and then I will marry it with. So for example, the Banksia it grows in poor soil and it's one of the biggest feeders of the bush um, and it can flower in, in drought and it doesn't uh, require a lot of rain. So, you know, I see the resilience and strength of that plant um, and, I, and I've now compared that to, say, the, the women in my family, especially the matriarchal you know, rural women, and I see the resilience and strength in them and, and, and how they have to get through. Um, so I've sort of paired that up and think, okay, now the banks here, the strength of the banks here is the strength of the women. So then I'll, I'll implement and, and fuse those two together. So the voice of that woman becomes the banks here and vice versa. So it's a sort of a symbiotic relationship and it's sort of dual purpose. It's sort of reconnecting you to, um, your own strengths and virtues, but it's also, um, connecting you to the bush as well and, um, and country. And so it's a way of going, you know, I've had a lot of people come up to me now and say, Oh yeah, I see a banks here in a different light. I see strength and resilience now um, through the painting. So it's a way of yeah connecting people back to the landscape in, in a storytelling form. Oh, I think that's so beautiful. I love that. Now, your artwork is on the front cover of the latest issue of Grazy Her magazine. What was the meaning behind the piece that was chosen for the front cover? Well, that was um, that's uh, an interpretation of Annie Jill um, when she first gave me my first one up to the station and she sent me all of those paints. Um, and that was my... Uh, so yes, she started it all. Um, but that was my time as a Jillaroo. And, um, I think, we, you know, we mentioned before about you know, how uh, the transition of going from a small farm up into the station. And, um, I'd never actually even seen cattle before, never been in a paddock with a cow before. So I was absolutely petrified. Um, I could ride a horse, but, you know, it was more dressage than actually, um, you know, cowboy style. So, um, yeah, the, that, word, that particular painting is, uh, running in the scrubbers where in the, in the, day when I was up there there were a lot of uh, wild cattle or scrubbers and we had to sort of clean up that country so we used a lot of horse uh, or wagon and a fixed wing plane to, to go into this country where you had the wild cattle so that's um yeah that painting is about those early days of, of running in cattle on horses. And why was that particular piece so special to you as opposed to everything else that you've done? Oh, just the thrill of it, uh, the thrill and the fear of it, I think, and that's the extreme of the Northwest. You know, it's um, it's good or it's bad or it's ugly. And I think it, you know, everything about that piece is all of it. You know, I've got the comfort of my auntie and the support, but, you know, when in the landscape um, and um, there was there's hardly any comfort in that landscape up there um, and, and the cattle. So, um, yeah, I think it's just the, yeah, the, the yin and the yang of that, the extremes of that, that's really powerful. I mean, it sounds, you know, I'm, I'm romanticising, it sounds wonderful, you know, it's, but it's absolutely frightening and, and hard yakka while you're there. You've recently exhibited at Michael Reed Miranda Gallery as part of Grazy Her's Art Station. How was that experience for you? Well, I um yeah, I loved it. I uh, what I really enjoyed um about heading over to Miranda was that it felt comfortable. So normally art galleries uh, I find them quite intimidating sometimes, but with um Michael Reed and what he's done with uh, Miranda, you just you, you know, it's it's a welcoming space, and also I'm just a huge advocate for um for cultural experiences in the bush, and that's um really lacking. So I found that um you know having you know him and um 
God, his business sense, well, not just business sense, but just saying, right, I'll, I'll build it and they shall come. You know, like in the middle of nowhere, I was quite surprised at how, how remote it was. It's mm. kind of like WA. Um, so it was really empowering to, you know, to drive so far and, and then find this beautiful little, um, gorgeous town and, um, and having arts in it. You know, I think, I think it'd be, be lovely if we could have a bit more of that. So, you know, people drive out there. It's become a location, but it's, it's flexible. It's a beautiful space. Um, and it has great art and great artists. You know, the, the gallery is beautiful lighting um, and the space is great. So it feels like, you know, what you could walk into in the city, but you've got that country um, hospitality as well. Was it nice also exhibiting with other rural women as opposed to just all other artists? They were all rural women. Yeah, that was great. Unfortunately, there was enough time to, you know, find out everybody else has a story and, it, and it's wonderful to hear their story and how they create because you know, being an artist isn't um especially a rural artist it's, it's quite isolated I mean we have got tools now with um you know texting and and uh, social media but generally it's isolated so actually meet somebody in person for me especially it's quite rare it's like I would I go about eight months to build up a body of work and I'll just put my head down and I won't you know I'll pop up at the end and um say hi to friends and family that have been neglected so it was really lovely um to actually have a community of artists because that's sort of quite, quite lacking in my world. Some of the pieces from the exhibition are still for sale and are still on display in the gallery. How can people access those? Well, um, yeah, it's great. So if you have, if you're not in the area, um, Emirundi, um, or close by, they have a, a wonderful online presence as well. So you can either email directly and James and, and the team will, will help you out there with if you're looking for a particular size or whatnot and then they can send you images or you can have basically from the from the uh, the website which is great and I think um, what I do like about it if you're familiar with that artist's work and you know the caliber of their work then you're not so it's not such an intimidating process to to buy online and also um, yeah just getting the backing from from Michael Reed and his galleries. I wanted to also talk to you about the property that you guys are currently on um, and the wonderful work that you're doing in the way of sustainable regenerative farming. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, that's an exciting, exciting process. And I guess it was born from um, our time in the Pilbara where we had this landscape um, as a pastoral lease and, and it's really hard to manipulate that landscape. I don't think you're allowed to anyway. So it was, it was a real clean life with no chemicals and, um, and we had to really, such an old, fragile country that we really had to look after it. And if you didn't, you, you really paid the consequences of it. So we sort of um, weren't grown up in that in that area with that sort of philosophy. And um, so coming down to the farm, we were doing everything backwards or <laughs> left the field compared to everybody else because what we started off like farming like everyone else and it just didn't feel right because there were so many um, inputs and it was all manipulated. And it's like, well, how do we create that balance where we've got that natural product? Um, we also saw that um, we had a lot of problems with the landscape, like a lot of erosion um, sold from overclearing and, and it was sort of unproductive country. So we looked at how do we, we bring it, take it back to its natural form and how do we use it? How do we create a dual purpose where we can farm, but we can uh, farm sustainably so that we're actually enhancing the environment? So we started looking at um, Indigenous land methods and this is where I was able to reconnect with family, which was absolutely wonderful because I didn't realise they were family, around you know bringing on some Indigenous methods like mosaic burning where we do cool burning across the landscape um, we're fortunate that we've got some uh, natural capital on our place where we've got natural bush. So what we're doing is we're working close with Maloon Institute over New South Wales around rehydrating the landscape, so creating nature corridors between the areas of bush. 
so they can feed there on top of the hills and they can join, uh, they're like little corridors that join uh, one bush area to another bush area. So your birds and your little marsupials and uh, like chordiches and fascicals and things can move across the landscape um, in safety. So they're not tied to this one little area where they get, where the, the, you know, they tire of their resources. So we've got, um, we're sort of working with that. So we're helping um, the Indigenous um, methods are helping with that around regenerating our natural bush, but also the, the nutrients that you're getting from that, um, keeping those bush, uh, keeping that bush healthy and, and with diversity. It's also flowing into the, um, the farming areas where it's enhancing, um, the, the farming belts of our property so we can farm better. So, you know, we're taking away that excess water and we're, we're we're fixing up the salt line areas, so that will increase our production over time with our cattle enterprise. So, um, yeah, it's a really, really exciting space to be in. But essentially it's quite old. It's almost going back in time and having a look at the old ways of doing things and applying the science to it. And is that something that will be That's very long-term goal? Is it something that is going to take it you is you know nature's nature's very slow i mean some of our we, we started off with a tree planting exercise i think we planted thirty five thousand trees and some of those well and shrubs and things um and some of those areas have been eaten out by nature and we're like damn it <laughs> our nature is eating out our nature so that that's quite frustrating because we're actually trying to help nature so yeah it, it is slow um especially when you're not using um, a lot of additives um it's a slower process but what we're finding is really rewarding is that our seasons are lasting longer just by keeping cover on the ground increasing our carbon content in our soil um and the the organic matter we've been able to um not drought proof ourselves but keep the water on the place longer so that our summers um yeah our our, our livestock and our bush can can get through these weather extremes. Oh, you're doing a wonderful thing. It all sounds incredible. Laurie, what would your advice be to any young women whose dream it may be to become an artist or a creative, but just like you, they may have been discouraged? Do you have any advice? Oh, I would say follow your small voice. I'm a big advocate for, um, yeah, listening to to the small voice inside of you. It's it's always right. Um, But interestingly, a mum, you know, she was always, um, no, 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 you've got to do something worthwhile. And she ended up being one of my biggest supporters. In fact, she was terribly embarrassing. We'd have to almost hide the fact that I was having an exhibition because she'd come along and try and buy stuff. And (laughs) I had end up having to say to the gallery, she is not allowed to purchase anything, you know, and uh, but it never worked. Somehow she she slipped through. Yeah, definitely be... um, yeah, finding having having the courage to, to just put it out there because it'll never it'll never be good enough, you know, like because you're always growing. So what you did yesterday, you've already you know moved on from. So it's just um, so that kind of sometimes stops people from from having a go because they think, oh, the next piece is going to be better or the next idea will be better. But um, it's a beautiful way of cataloging and journeying your your development as a person. Um, and what I love about it is that you can. You're reaching people. You're connecting to people, and um, and if you can make a difference to one person, then then it's and that's worthwhile. But uh, yeah, definitely follow your follow your small voice. Um, be courageous. You don't have to be confident. You just have to be courageous and never give up. Um, there's a lot of times where I think actually my first gallery I went along, or my first set of paintings down um, close to the city, and I showed I showed them and said, "What do you think?" And they said, "Go home and practice." And we know we don't want them. And um, I was nearly in tears, so I was packing the paintings back up into the car and boot up in uh, the back of the gallery. And a person came along and I said, "Excuse me, but I saw those. Are they for sale?" You know, so um, it was like, yeah, it was just 
God, if that man hadn't come along, would I would still be doing this? I don't know. But it was just a, it was a good sign at the time. But yeah, if you, if you feel in your heart that um, what you're doing is is great and that you've got authenticity um, and integrity with what you're doing, then it's always going to work out. I love the way Laurie looks at the world around her and I hope she's inspired someone out there to pursue that dream that might seem a little out of reach. Thank you again for your company on today's episode. I'm Sammy O'Brien. Stay well and I'll be back next week with yet another great story from around the country.